Good morning, family and friends. Our study is going to start today in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 50. And this is entitled, The Servant's Secrets. How many of you know from time to time, Jesus shared special little secrets with his disciples? And and uh, we're going to go over those today. Believers, believers today need to understand and need to apply these spiritual secrets. We need to apply them to our own lives and, uh, and be all that God wants them to be in our lives. So in chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus had been preparing his disciples for this private meeting at which time he intended to reveal to them what would happen to him at Jerusalem. So he had been giving hints along the way, but now he would explain matters to them, and he would explain it more fully. For the site, he selected Caesarea Philippi. It was about 25 miles north of Bethesda, sitting at the foot of Mount Hermon. The town was named after Augustus Caesar and Herod uh, Philip, and it contained a marble temple dedicated to Augustus. So it was a place dedicated to the glory of Rome, and that glory is now gone. But the glory of Jesus Christ remains, and it will go on for eternity. So if you were to go around asking your friends, what do people say about me? Uh, They would take it as an evidence of maybe pride. What difference does it really make what people think or say about you or us? You know, what? we're not that important, but what people believe and say about Jesus Christ is important for he is the son of God and the only savior of sinners. So your confession or my confession concerning Jesus is a matter of life and death to many. See John 8:21 also verse 24. The citizens of Caesarea Philippi would say Caesarea Caesar, excuse me Caesarea, Caesar is a lord. That confession might identify them as loyal Roman citizens, but it could never save them from their sin and from in an eternal hell. The only confession that saves us is Jesus is Lord. See 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. When that confession comes from the heart that uh, truly believes in him, it is remarkable that the number of different opinions, let me say that again, opinions that people held about Jesus, though that through and though the same situation probably exists today, that some thought some thought that he was John the Baptist is especially perplexing since John and Jesus had been seen publicly together. So they were quite different in personality and in ministry. So it does seem kind of strange that people would confuse them. John the Baptist came 
the Bible says, in the spirit and power of Elijah in Luke 1, verse 17. And then in a ministry of judgment, whereas Jesus came in a spirit of meekness and service. So John performed no miracles, but Jesus was a miracle worker. John even dressed like the prophet Elijah. So how could the people confuse the two? Some said that Jesus was one of the prophets, perhaps Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, they called him. And Jesus was a man of sorrow. So there is a definite parallel there. Jeremiah called the people to true repentance from the heart, and so did Jesus. Both men were understood, and both were rejected by their own people. Both condemned the false religious leaders and the hypocritical worship in the temple, and both were persecuted by those in authority. So in his words and in his works, Jesus gave every evidence to the people that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and yet they did not get the message. So instead of diligently seeking for the truth, the people listened to popular opinion, and they followed popular opinion, just as many people do today. They had opinions instead of what? Convictions, which is what we need to have. And this is what led them astray, was their their opinions. So Peter's confession was bold and it was uncompromising, just as ours should be. But Peter said to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16. And the word Christ means, quote, the anointed one, the promised Messiah. So prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed when installed in their offices. And then, and our Lord holds all three offices. So why did Jesus warn them to keep quiet about him? For one thing, the disciples themselves, themselves still had much to learn about him and what it, what it truly meant to follow him. The religious leaders of the nation had already made up their minds about him and to proclaim him as Messiah now would only upset God's plans. The common people wanted to see his miracles, but they had little desire to submit to his message. And so we see that today as well. So to announce him as Messiah might well result in a some type of political uprising that would only do harm. And then in verses 31 through 38, uh, now that they had confessed their faith in Christ, the disciples were ready for the, quote, secret Jesus wanted to share with him. He was going with them to Jerusalem where he would die on a cross. From this point on, Mark will focus on their journey to Jerusalem, and the emphasis will be on Jesus approaching death and resurrection. So this announcement stunned the disciples. If, If he is indeed the Christ of God, as they had confessed, then why would he be rejected by religious leaders? Why would these leaders crucify him? 
Did not the Old Testament uh, scriptures promise that that the Messiah would defeat all their enemies and establish a glorious kingdom for Israel? There was something wrong somewhere, and the disciples were confused. True to character, (laughs) it was Peter who expressed their concern. So one minute Peter was led by God to confess his faith in Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 17, and the next minute he was thinking like an unbelieving man and expressing the thoughts of Satan. This is warning to us that when we argue with God's word, we open the door for Satan's lies. So Peter began rebuking his master, and Mark used the same word that describes um, our Lord's rebuking of the demons in Mark 1.25 and 3.12. So Peter's protest was born out of his ignorance, his ignorance of God's will and his deep love for his Lord. So one minute Peter was a rock and the next minute he was a stumbling block. Peter did not yet understand the relationship between suffering and glory. He would eventually learn this lesson. And he would emphasize, he would even emphasize it in the first a uh, book that he wrote in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 18, also chapter 4 and chapter 5. But note that when Jesus rebuked Peter, he also looked on his disciples because they agreed with Peter's assessment of the situation. Steeped in Jewish traditional interpretation, they were unable to understand how their Messiah could ever suffer and die. To be sure, some of the prophets had written about the Messiah's sufferings, but much more had been written about Messiah's glory. Woo-wee, praise the Lord. Feel the presence of the Lord just swoop down, that waves of glory. Some of the rabbis even taught that there would be two Messiahs, one who would suffer and one who would reign. See 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12. No wonder the disciples were confused, but the problem was more than theological. It was very practical. Jesus had called these men to follow him, and they knew that, you know, whatever happened to him would happen to them. So if there was a cross in his future, there was going to probably be a cross in their future as well. And that would be a reason enough to disagree with him in spite of their devotion to him. The disciples were still ignorant of the true relationship between the cross and the crown. So they were following Satan's philosophy, glory without suffering. Instead of God's philosophy, suffering transformed into glory. Amen. You know what, God, as the Bible says, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So which philosophy you accept will, deter- will determine how you live and how you serve. In Mark, I 
think it was uh, chapter 8, verse 34, it indicates that though Jesus and his disciples had met in private, the crowds were not far away. So Jesus summoned the people and he taught them what he taught his own disciples. There is a price to pay for true discipleship. Let me, did anybody hear me say that? There is a price to pay for true discipleship. It's going to cost you. It's actually going to cost you everything. So he knew that the crowds were following him only because of the miracles and that most of the people were unwilling to pay the price to become a true disciple. Jesus laid down three conditions of or for true discipleship. Let me get a sip of my coffee. Okay, so those three conditions for true discipleship were number one, we must surrender ourselves completely to him. Number two, we must identify with him in suffering and death. And number three, we must follow him obediently wherever he leads. If we live for ourselves, we will lose ourselves. But if we lose ourselves for his sake and the gospels, we will find ourselves. So denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for a good purpose, we occasionally give up things for or, or give up activities, but we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey him or determine to obey his will. This uh, once and for all dedication is followed by a daily, as Paul taught, dying to self daily as we take up our cross and follow him. So from the human point of view, we are losing ourselves, but from the divine perspective, we are finding ourselves. And when we live for Christ, we become more like him. And this brings out our own unique individuality. But note the motivation for true discipleship. In Mark uh, 8, verse 35, it says, For my sake and for the gospel's sake. So to lose yourself is it's not an act of desperation. It's an act of devotion. But we don't stop there. Personal devotion should lead to a practical duty. The sharing of the gospel with a lost world. Jesus said, for my sake, that could lead to selfish religious isolationism. So it must be balanced out with and the gospel's sake. So because we live for him, we live for others. Discipleship is a matter of profit and loss, a question of whether We will waste our lives or invest our lives. That is a good point right there. I hope you heard it. Discipleship is a matter of profit and loss, a question of whether we will waste our lives or invest our lives. So note the severe warning Jesus gives us here. Once we have spent our lives, we cannot buy them back. Whatever we've spent our lives on, we've lost that part of our life. 
Remember, he was instructing his disciples, men who had already confessed him as the Son of God. He was not telling them how to be saved and how to go to heaven, but how to save their lives and make the most of their opportunities on on earth. So losing your soul is the equivalent of wasting your life. Missing the great opportunities that God gives you to make your life count. You may gain the whole world and be a success in the eyes of men and yet have nothing to show for your life when you stand before God. And if that happens, uh, though you did own the whole world, it would not be sufficient price to give to God to buy another chance at life. You can't buy it. So is, is there any reward for the person who is a true disciple? Yes, there is. He becomes much more like Jesus Christ and one day shares in his glory. Satan promises you glory, but in the end you receive suffering eternally. God promises you suffering, but in the end that suffering is transformed into glory. If we acknowledge Christ and live for him, he will one day acknowledge us and share his glory with us. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, it it takes faith to accept and practice this lesson on discipleship. So six days later, the Lord gave a dazzling uh, proof that God indeed does transform suffering into glory. Luke is uh, about eight days is inclusive of the day of the lesson and the day of the glory. Luke 9:28. He took Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain. Remember that? It may have been Mount Hermon. And there he revealed his glory. And this event was, was a vivid confirmation of his words as recorded in Mark um, chapter 8, verse 38, as well as a demonstration of the glory of the future kingdom in 9, verse 1. So the message was clear, first the suffering, then the glory. Moses represented the law and Elijah, the prophets, so both of which find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Moses had died and his body was buried, but Elijah had been raptured to heaven. And when Jesus returns, he will raise the bodies of the saints who died and will rapture the living saints. So Jesus will one day establish his glorious kingdom and fulfill the many promises that were made through the prophets. Christ's sufferings and his death would not prevent God from establishing his kingdom. Rather, by solving the sin problem in God's world, the cross would help to make the kingdom possible. The word transfigured describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. So it's opposite of masquerade, right? Which is an outward change that does not come from within. It changes nothing from within. It just puts a mask on. We got a lot of 
masquerading going on in our world. Jesus allowed his glory to radiate through his whole being and and the mountaintop became a holy of holies. So as you meditate on this event, keep in mind that he has shared this glory with us and he has promised us a glorious home forever. See John 17. And then according according to Romans 12 verse 1 and 2 and to 2 Corinthians, believers today can experience this same transfiguration glory. You can experience, friends, you can actually literally experience this glory. You can actually experience the the tangible presence of God in this earth. The three disciples had gone to sleep while Jesus was praying here in Luke chapter 9, a failure that they would repeat in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. So they almost missed seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus in his glory. Peter's suggestion reflects again human thinking and not divine wisdom. How wonderful it would be to stay on the mountaintop and bask in his glory But discipleship means denying self, taking up a cross, and following him. You cannot do that and selfishly stay on the mountain of glory. There needs to be met in the valley below. If we want to share the glory of Christ on the mountaintop, then we must be willing to follow him into the sufferings of the valley below. The father interrupted Peter's speech and focused their attention not on the vision, but on the word of God, where the Bible says, hear him. The memory of visions will fade, but the unchanging word of God abides forever. And friends, we need to be in that word. The glorious vision was not an end in itself. It was God's way of confirming the word. See 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Discipleship is not built on spectacular vision, but on the inspired, unchanging word of God. Let me say that one more time. Discipleship is not built. This is you being built in Christ, having received Christ. Discipleship is not built on spectacular visions but on the inspired and unchanging word of God. Nor do we put Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on the same level as Peter hinted to do. It is Jesus only. It is his word, his will, his kingdom, and his glory. The three men were not allowed to tell the other nine what had what they had seen on the mountain. So no doubt their explanation after his resurrection brought great encouragement to the believers who themselves would experience suffering and death for his sake. In in, uh, verses 11 through 13, the disciples here now understood God's plan much better, but they were still confused. 
about the coming of Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. So they knew the prophecies in Malachi 3 and 1 and 4, verse 5 and 6, and that their teachers expected these prophecies to be fulfilled before the Messiah appeared. John 1, verse 21. Well, had Elijah already come and they missed him, or was he yet to come? Perhaps, Perhaps the appearing of Elijah on the mountain was the fulfillment of the prophecy. But Jesus made two facts clear. First, for those who had trusted in him, this Elijah was John the Baptist. For John had indeed prepared the way before him. So John had denied that he was Elijah come from the dead. See John 1 verses 21 and verse 25. But he did minister in the spirit and power of Elijah. It says in Luke 1.16. Second, there would be a future coming of Elijah just as Malachi had predicted in Matthew 17 verse 11. Before the time of the great tribulation, and there are some students that connect this with Revelation 11 verses 2 through 12, The nation did not accept John's ministry. Had they received John, he would have served as the Elijah that God sent. And they also would have received Jesus. Instead, they rejected both men and allowed them to be slain. And then verse 14 through 29 of chapter 9. The Christian's life is a land of hills and valleys. See Deuteronomy 11.11. In one day, a disciple can move from the glory of heaven to the attacks of hell. So when our Lord and his three friends returned to the other nine disciples, they found them involved in a dual problem. They were unable to deliver a boy from a a demonic attack or demonic control and the scribes were defeating excuse me they were debating the scribes the scribes were debating with them and perhaps even taunting them because of their failure so as always it was Jesus who stepped in to solve the problem the boy was both deaf and dumb Mark 9:17 also verse 25 and the demon was doing his best to destroy him. So imagine imagine what it would be like for that father to try to care for the boy and protect him. Jesus had given his disciples authority to cast out demons in Mark 6 verse 7 and verse 13. And yet their ministry to the boy was ineffective. No wonder the Lord was grieved with them. How often he must be be grieved with us when we fail to use the spiritual resources he has graciously given to his people. Since the disciples had failed, the desperate father was not even sure that Jesus could succeed. So his statement, if you can do anything, in Mark 9, 22. So 
the father was honest enough to admit his own unbelief and to ask the Lord to help him and to help his son. So Jesus did cast out the demon. Jesus did restore the boy to his father. And the main reason of this miracle is the power of faith to overcome the enemy. God has given us that faith. He's given, he's commissioned us to go and to cast out devils, heal the sick, and do many marvelous and wonderful things, do more than he even did. So we might say, why had the nine disciples failed? Because they had, uh, they had been careless, actually, in their personal spiritual walk, and they had neglected prayer, and they had neglected fasting. And you know what? Sometimes we do the same thing. But those are the things that we cannot neglect. They are important. The authority that Jesus had given them was effective only if exercised by faith. But faith must be cultivated through spiritual discipline and devotion. So it may be that the absence of their Lord, of his taking the three disciples with him and leaving them behind, had maybe put a damper on their spiritual fervor and diminished their faith. You know, it doesn't really say, but they, they had... They had been commissioned. They had The Lord had already given them authority and sent them. So not only did their failure embarrass them, but it also robbed the Lord of glory, and it gave the enemy opportunity to criticize. So is our faith in him that glorifies God? See Romans 4 verse 20. And then verses 30 through 50, Jesus was still leading his disciples to Jerusalem. And and as they went, he reminded them of what would happen to him there. Not that we have to note that he also reminded them of his resurrection, but they were unable to understand what he was saying. They just didn't get it. Matthew 17 verse 9. They were exceedingly sorry. They were deeply grieved, the Bible says in Matthew 17. However, they were not grieved enough to set aside their personal dispute over which of them was the greatest. So after they heard what Jesus had said about his own suffering and death, you know, you would think that they would have forgotten their own selfish plans and concentrated on him and what he was about to go through. But perhaps the fact that Peter, James, and John had gone on the mount with Jesus had added some fuel to the fire of the competition to teach them, to teach us a lesson on honor because Jesus set a child before them and explained that the way to be first is to be last, and the way to be last is to be the servant of all. So the unspoiled child is an example of submission and humility. The unspoiled child is an example of submission and humility. A child knows he is a child and acts like a child. 
and that is his secret of attracting love and care. The child who tries to impress us by acting like an adult does not get the same type of attention. So true humility means knowing yourself, accepting yourself, being yourself, your best self, and giving of yourself uh, for others. The world's philosophy is that you're, you are great. And if others are working for you, but Christ's message is that greatness comes from our serving others. Since the world's, since the words child and servant are the same in the Aramaic language, it's easy to see why Jesus connected the two. If we have the heart of a child, we're going to have little difficulty being servants. And, but if we have the attitude of servants, we will become the children as the representatives of Jesus Christ and the Father. So at this point, John felt it was necessary to defend the disciples by pointing out their zeal. So imagine telling a man to stop casting out demons when the nine disciples had failed to deliver the deaf and the dumb boy from Satan's power. To use the name of Jesus is the same as working under his authority. So the men had no right to stop the man. And to his own master, he stands or falls, it says in Romans 14.4. And then in chapter... He that is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. Both statements declare the possibility of neutrality when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So since we cannot be neutral, if we are not for him, then we must be against him. If we we are not against him, then we must be for him. So the anonymous exorcist was bringing glory to his name. So he had to be for the Savior and not against him. But it's not necessary to perform great miracles to prove our love for Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. It is not necessary to perform great miracles to prove our love for the Lord. When we lovingly receive a child or compassionately share a cup of cold water, we are giving evidence that we have the humble heart of a servant. So after all, we are serving Christ and that is the highest service in the world. Jesus did not treat John's statement lightly. In fact, he went on to explain the danger of causing others to stumble and therefore stop serving the Lord. See Mark 9, 42 through 50. So these little one refers to all God's children who follow Christ and seek to serve him. The way believers treat others in the family of God is a serious thing. And God wants us to have peace one with another. The disciples did not get along with each other, nor did they get along with other 
believers. So this solemn message about hell carries a warning to all of us to deal drastically with sin. Whatever in our lives makes us stumble and therefore causes others to stumble, it must be removed as even if by surgery. So the hand, the foot, the eye would be considered valuable parts of the body, yet they must be removed if they are causing sin. And then the Lord is not commanding literal physical surgery since he had already made it clear that it comes from the heart. See Mark 7 verse 20 and 23. So what he is teaching is that sin is to the inner person what a cancerous tumor is to the body. It must be dealt with drastically. So some people are shocked to hear from the the lips of Jesus such frightening words about hell. Jesus believed in a place called hell, a place of eternal torment and righteous punishment. See Luke 16 verse 19. The word translated hell is Gehenna. It comes from a Hebrew phrase, the Valley of Hinnon, referring to an actual valley outside Jerusalem where wicked King Ahaz worshipped Molech, the fire god, and even sacrificed his children in the fire there. There are some of the manuscripts do not have Isaiah 66 for quoted, But in Mark 9, verse 44 and verse 46, but the statement is quoted in verse 48, and that one verse is sufficient. Hell is not temporary, but hell is is forever. See Revelation verse 20 through 10. So that is where we don't want to go. We need to keep in right standing with God at all times. How essential it is for the sinners to trust Jesus Christ and to be delivered from eternal hell. And how important it is for the believers to get the message out to the lost world. But you know that seems to be such a great sacrifice to ask from some. I've heard people say, you know what, not my thing to go and speak to a lost world about their soul. Not my thing. God didn't call me to do that. No, God did call you to do that. That is the Great Commission. There are many places where Jesus spoke about going to the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Then there's the Great Commission. So he did, he did call us to do that. Um, In Mark 9, verse 49 through 50, Jesus used the concept of living sacrifices to illustrate his point. The sacrifice ends up on the altar and it's consumed by the fire. So would you rather endure the fires of hell as a lost sinner 
or the purifying fires of God as a sacrifice for his glory. Remember this, Satan promises you glory now, but the pain comes later and it will be eternal. Jesus calls us to suffering now and then we will enjoy the glory forever. The Jews were not allowed to put uh, leaven or honey on their sacrifices, but they were required to use salt. Salt speaks of purity and preservation. Preservation. It was used in the Old Testament days in establishing of covenants. So the disciples were God's salt, Matthew 5.13. But they were in danger of losing their flavor and becoming worthless. So our, our salt today is purified and it does not lose its taste. But the salt of that day contained impurities and could lose its flavor. So once you have lost that precious Christian character, how will you restore it? Instead of rebuking others, the disciples should have been examining their own hearts, just like we should. It's easy to lose our, our saltiness and become useless to God. Christians will experience the fire of trials and persecutions. See 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And they need to stand together no matter who is the greatest. So commitment, I'm going to close with this last paragraph here. Commitment and character are the essentials if we are going to glorify him and have peace with each other. Commitment and character are two big essentials in our life. So the three lessons that Jesus taught in, in, in this section are basic to Christian living today. If we are yielded to him, then suffering will lead to glory. Faith will produce power and our sacrificial service will lead to honor. In spite of his impetuousness and occasional mistakes, Peter got the message and wrote, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto the unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that ye have suffered a little while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And that is 1 Peter 5 verses 10 through 11. And in saying that, I'm going to close and say, God bless you and thank you for joining me to study God's word. As many times I've said it, if we don't know anything else in this world, we must know the Word of God. To be strong, to stand strong in Him, we must know His Word. If we don't read it, and not only just read it, the Bible says if we don't hear it. We've got to be hearers and not just doers only. So in saying that, I'm going to close. And God bless you for the week. Have a great rest of the day and just be blessed in Jesus name.